Welcome to the In and Around Pleasant Hill podcast with Alex Kodadad, a successful real estate business owner and a lifelong resident of the East Bay, who received a Hometown Hero Award for his Facebook group, In and Around Pleasant Hill Food and Drinks, saving local restaurants during the pandemic. His new podcast will provide inspiring success stories and educational takeaways from local business owners and community leaders, helping listeners get from where they are to where they want to be. Hope everybody's doing well. Welcome to episode number four of In and Around Pleasant Hill podcast with Alex Kodadat. As always, do me a favor and subscribe and let your friends know about know about my new podcast. I hope to make this podcast an inspirational and an educational journey for all uh, by me interviewing local business owners and community leaders about their success stories. My guest today is Cindy Sayak. Cindy, how you doing? Hi, Alex. Good to see you. Good to see you and nice to talk to you thank you so much for your time i know you guys are probably very slammed in your profession right now um so i want to get right dive right into it um for our listeners out there um you know uh, this whole uh, wealth transfer and and a lot of things about living trust and probate it's going to be a huge topic i'm thinking maybe for the next 10 15 years but anyways uh let us know about you, your background first, please. I would really appreciate that. Sure. Okay. So I, hi everybody. I am a local attorney here in my office is in Walnut Creek and I live over in Lafayette with my husband and my two little uh, boys. They're five and eight. And I've been practicing exclusively in trust and estates law since, um, I think 2014. Um, And and by exclusively, I mean, that's the only type of practice that I'm doing. I don't work in other litigation or civil matters. You know, I'm solely focused on dealing with probates, estate planning, and trust administration. Um, I was introduced to trust and estates through my former partner, um, who, who was a mentor for me when I was still in law school and who educated me on why a trust was necessary in California. I was very uninformed as a young law student about why people need a trust and just assumed it didn't apply to the majority of people. And when I started working with my, with Liz, my former partner, she explained to me why for most people actually in the Bay Area, but in California in general, an estate plan is necessary as far as a trust goes specifically with real estate. Um, And so it became a much more interesting practice area because there's so many things that we as lawyers can do to help the client with, you know, dealing with just managing their assets, with helping a ailing family member, with helping um, the client plan for wealth preservation and passing on those assets to their children without huge tax implications. Um, and so it's a great area to really connect with the clients, to support them and their families, and to continue to provide a service that's actually really helping people. And I mean, you know, you, I'm sure you know, Alex, there's not a, always a great reputation for lawyers and trust in estates is a great area as a lawyer to really help your clients with solving problems and seeing resolutions and actually getting to know people and having a personal relationship. So it's been yeah. a great, great career and experience for me. Right. Like right, like right now, um, I'm getting, uh, like I was, uh, we are talking earlier before we went on, um, on our podcast about, I get between five to 10 phone calls a week, um, about, you know, um, 
somebody that wants to sell their house and usually three, four, five of them are all, you know, hey, grandma just passed away or my mom just passed away or my mom is old now and we need your help. Now, some of them, if they were smart enough, they put it in a living trust, but some of them, obviously, they didn't, you know, like they need to go through a probate or they're, they're working with someone regarding the probate. And this is an area that, um, you know, when, when you're when you're young, you think like, okay, I'm going to live forever. I'm never going to die. And then as you get older and older, you said, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And unfortunately, sometimes you just never get to it. And this whole, uh, you know, I, I read an article, Cindy, that says that the next 10 to 15 years, something like $890 billion a year is going to transfer wealth. Is that correct? Yeah, so there's a really significant thing happening right now in this practice area because of the baby boomers. And certainly in this area, significantly is a, an area that has a lot of wealthy people and a lot of assets. And so there's a huge transition of wealth taking place right now because of the aging population. And I think that it's very common for people to I can't tell you how many times clients say to me, oh, well, I don't really have that much, so I don't think I need a trust. There's this misconception that you need to have millions and millions of dollars and be very you know, sick or elderly before you need to really think about a, a trust or a will and whatnot. And the reality is, is if you own real estate in the Bay Area, your estate is an automatically a candidate for a probate and going through the court system rather than your estate being distributed to the people you want under the terms you want and a much more efficient, both from a um, cost perspective and time perspective process. And so I, I think that you're right that a lot of people just don't get around to setting up the trust because they don't think that it applies to them. It's, a, it's just people aren't informed and don't understand of why the trust really is necessary if you own real property. Right. And and, and, and another thing also to beside having a trust is this will. Yeah. Like, I mean, the parents die and then now that the siblings are fighting each other, you know, luckily if there's only one sibling, you don't really have much to worry about. But when you got two, three siblings or a couple siblings, like you got two kids and they're actually the same age as mine. You got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old too. And it's like, these are things that we need to plan now. And so 20, 30, 40, 50 years when you and me, when we're not around, they're not fighting each other. They're not fighting each other. And even if they love each other, maybe they get married and maybe their spouses are going to be like, hey, that's your share. So I think it's really need to be in black and white. I want to hear some, I mean, we're not going to get into people's names or anything, but tell me some horror stories about people didn't get to that. I'm, 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 I'm sure I'm assuming that you've had people that have come to you and said, hey, I want to sue my siblings or administrator or the executor. Tell us about those stories. So this could be a wake up call for yeah. our listeners. So it is, there's a couple of different things that I really try to impress upon my clients when they're preparing estate plans and that I really make an effort to put um, notes about in my file. And, and that's talking about the relationships between the kids. If you have multiple children, it, even if it's only two, but certainly if there are more than two, it's really critical to document as the lawyer in my file, what are the relationships like between the kids? And for me to learn about the dynamics from the parents, because 
if there are any sort of problems going on or the kids are not on good terms or they're not communicative, to me, that's a red flag for what's ahead. And if the parents are going to do anything to exclude a child or favor one child over the other, it's really important to understand why that's happening. Because what the parents need to think about is when some, when you die, you're no longer here to answer questions and deal with the conflict and try to explain your answers. Um, and so my job as a lawyer is to try to do my best to speak on those decisions that have been made. And when, like you mentioned, lawsuits happen and whatnot, the at- drafting attorney is often questioned as the voice of the person who's died. And, and I need those notes in my file to understand why mom is only leaving the house to, you know, one child as opposed to it being split in half, for example. Um, And I like to tell the clients, a lot of people don't want to talk about death and they don't feel like they should have to share their business with their kids. And of course they don't have to, those are all personal decisions, but the more communicative and transparent you are with the kids, again, the more likely you are to avoid problems down the road because the kids go into things knowing what's ahead. What I can tell you, I mean, this is a very, it's going to sound like a silly story, but um, what happens is when parents die, a lot of emotions and issues from childhood rear their heads and conflict between the siblings start to develop. And, you know, I have had um, all sorts of different cases where that's come out, where people are fighting over paintings or a sweater or something that no one actually really cares about. I had a case where there is a painting in my office for months and months because the siblings wanted to fight over who got it. And eventually, once the decision was made, the person who got the painting was a trash can. No one actually wanted the painting. They just wanted to fight about who was going to win. And that, that goes on, obviously, into more complex matters where somebody finds out after the fact that they've been excluded from their parents' trust because they weren't on good terms with the mom or something towards the end of their life. And then the other sibling gets everything. And now that person might be the trustee and they have to essentially go to court and fight with their sibling and defend their parents' trust who excluded their brother or sister. That's really painful and complex situation. And there are millions and millions of dollars at stake when you get yourself into those situations. And the person or the people who gain the most money from those situations, honestly, are the attorneys who are going to court and litigating it, you know, just because people can't talk about things. So again, my point is just, I mean, I don't want to be all sound um, dramatic and doom and gloom, but it can get really messy and emotions can really take over. And the more planning and conversations that you can have while you're alive with your family and with your lawyer and with your therapist and whatnot, the better, because then you're really going to structure things to lead to success for your children. Hopefully. Right. <laughs> now, now, Cindy, um, what about like you, you, you brought it up a few minutes ago. So you think it's actually good that while you're alive, let's say your, your children are at a certain age that they can understand what you're talking about to sure. really sit down with them and say, look, I'm creating a living trust and I'm going to put a will and this is what I'm going to do and document everything. The only thing I've actually had a a very close friend of mine that's had that issue, sat down with the children, talked to all of them. But then now this person is saying, Hey, I want to become the executor or this person says, no, I want, I want to be the, you know, it's like, how do you, 
how do you get around that? Like if one, you know, you got to choose somebody. I mean, like yeah. you advise them to maybe you should, they should choose the person who's writing the drafting that living trust. And that's the person that I represent or what recommendation do you have on that? Yeah. So I think that's actually a perfect example, Alex, of why you should be having the conversations now, because often people will just pick the children in order of age, you know, this okay. child's the oldest, or they will say this child's the most responsible and this child is not, this one's good with money. This one's not. And what will happen is the child will be offended and will take it personally. And what it will lead to conflict with the sibling who is the trustee. So a great thing that, again, I really encourage all of my clients to do, and some do and some don't, is to have the conversation with the kids while we're drafting the estate plan and say, you know, this is what the role of the trustee is. This is how much work this is. This is a legally um, responsible fiduciary role where you have obligations beyond just being a person. You know, you're in a, a very... Um, a, a role of a lot of responsibility as far as selling houses, dealing with taxes, distributing, and managing money. And so the more conversation you have, the better. If the conflict then comes up, like you mentioned, for example, where one kid says, no, I want to do it or no, I don't want to do it. And, and that leads to some issues that the parents discover, then that's a really good time for the parents to think about, okay, this doesn't make sense. Someone else should be involved, perhaps a third party fiduciary. So like you had just said, well, would the lawyer be the person? Usually it's not ideal for the drafting attorney to be a professional or be the trustee because there's a conflict of interest there. You know, you're naming yourself in your own documents. You have the potential to gain financially. And those, those aren't a good, it's not a good idea. So also lawyers are expensive, right? So I always recommend my clients use a professional fiduciary, which is somebody who is licensed and um, certified and whatnot through the state who does this as a living. They are completely independent. They're not involved in the family drama and, and dynamics, and they know how to efficiently wrap up an estate. Um, what the clients will do is I'll give some names who I think would be a great fit and give them some choices. And then the clients will reach out to those people and talk to them about their situation, what their needs are, and see if it makes sense and it's a good fit rather than having their kids in that role where they are already having conflict going on um, while they're still alive. If you're already having your kids having disputes over your estate while you're still here, then that's probably a good sign that you might want to either pick some other family uh, member or friends, trusted, you know, advisor, or like I said, a, a professional fiduciary. So the trustee, then their profession. So because some of the other siblings, they might think like, okay, well, if this person is in charge, that means that they can make decisions whenever they feel like it. Right. They'll, they'll sell the house whenever they get to it. Or what right. about if they don't want to sell the house? Maybe they want to buy it for themselves. It's not like that, correct? Yeah, no, it's not like that. That is a very common um, fear that beneficiaries have. They feel concerned that whoever the trustee is, that the trustee gets to make all the decisions, that the trustee gets to do what they want, and they don't have any accountability. That is just not true. The trustee has to follow the rules that are outlined in the trust and more specifically are set um, by statutory probate code. And so um, the trustee certainly is in a position where they're making decisions, right, that benefit the, the beneficiaries and, and whatnot, but they have to act within the terms of the trust and in the best interest of the beneficiary. So 
for example, to your, your point, if someone, one of the kids says, well, I want the house. And when one of the other kids says, well, I don't want the house, I want the money. The trustee can work with the, with the, both of the children to figure out what is the fair market value of this property. If the trust says the house goes 50, 50, then, and one child wants to buy it and one doesn't, we can figure out a way to determine the appropriate value of this property and figure out how the child who doesn't want the house can get the same value in cash. And the child who does want the house can get the house. There's certainly ways to do that, but if you have a situation where none of the beneficiaries are in agreement and the trustee is getting concerned about what to do, the trustee also has options. They might feel comfortable moving forward and you know getting everybody on the same page, or they might seek um, court supervision of the administration of the trust to be sure that everybody feels that their interests are being properly represented. And the beneficiaries might also hire a lawyer to represent them who will negotiate with the trustee as well. So it is very common for people to have this idea that the trustee can do whatever they want, but that's just not the case. The trustee is acting in a fiduciary role following the terms of the trust, which ultimately benefit the beneficiaries. And there's all sorts of things keeping the trustee accountable as well. And what about if the trustee does want to feel like doing whatever they want to do? <laughs> that, the kids can get an attorney and sue the trustee, correct? Of course. Yeah. So if so, you know, as I'm sure you know, everybody's entitled to their day in court. That's the way that the American, you know, court system works here. And so if somebody thinks the trustee is doing something unethical, certainly it would be great to communicate with the trustee first and figure out, you know, what's actually going on and gather actual facts and information. But yes, a a beneficiary can always hire a, an attorney and they'll file a petition against the trustee for a breach of uh, their behaviors or to remove the trustee based on whatever the accusations and facts are that they believe exist. Now, what about if the parents were always very secretive, mm -hmm. never told the kids anything? Sure. Let's say they did have a trust. Let's say they did have a life insurance or they did have a will and like, and the kids can't find it or they don't know anything about it. Is a trust a public record that they can go online and search and find that? Yeah, that's a great question. No, the reason that so many people like trust is because they are in fact not a public record. Um, the way you find out about a trust um, is essentially, if you look up a house, you know, when you're trying to manage or sell the house after your parents have passed away, you find out who's, what's the title of the house? Is it in the parents' names as individuals or is it in the name of the trust? That's very common for, for folks to find out that way about a trust. Another example is um, bank accounts. You know, they won't know about a trust and then they'll go through their parents' mail and they'll find all sorts of uh, bank accounts, investments, insurance policies with a trust name on them. And so then what they have to do is figure out how to get a copy of the trust and try to track that down through their parents' records, which typically is how it's found or if they can find a lawyer. I mean, I will get emails occasionally and saying, you know, this client came to me and this is their deceased parent and they're trying to figure out who the lawyer was who represented them in, in preparing the trust. So it's definitely not a public record and it's, it's not great if the family has no idea that it exists, if they don't know anything about the trust or the parent's assets, it's a lot of work to, I mean, it's a lot of work when you do know, but to not, to be totally in the dark is hard. Now I've heard stories, Cindy, where, you know, that the, the parents have their trust, they have a will, the kids know what's in the will, but towards the end of their life, maybe some of the kids, they don't live around there and only one kid lives nearby and that one kid's been taking care of them. And 
Yeah. Without the other kids even finding out, maybe the, the kid writes a will, then then yeah. tells the parents, Hey, I, I did all of this for you. Where's your other children? I'm here for you. Right. So sign this. I mean, and it gets notarized, but the other ones never knew anything about it. Have you heard those kind of stories? Yeah. So that happens all the time. That's really common um, where one child ends up being the main caretaker for a parent towards the end of life. And the parent ends up in this vulnerable position where they're very reliant on that child and the and want to do something to show their appreciation for the child. So this can go both ways. I mean, that's what I've seen where either all the siblings are aware of what's going on and want the child who's taking care of mom to get something extra for their time and some sort of compensation and whatnot. Or it can happen where two ways, either the parent doesn't tell the rest of the family and the other family members are very hurt and very upset about it. Or like you just mentioned, the child who is the caregiver actually uses that position of power and influence over the parent and says, I want to be taken care of now. I've been taking care of you and pressures them into changing their estate plan. And there are um, a lot of litigation. There are a lot of, there is a lot of litigation over the, these types of cases and these matters. And there have been laws um, written in the last several years, especially when the person can be characterized as a caregiver, where there's a presumption that you're is influencing the person who's elderly or sick yeah. and vulnerable. And so, right. yes, that's very common. And it's just like everything else, you know, all these whether or not you have a valid case or not, the court is there as an avenue for a resolution. And so that is where people go to seek some sort of answers if they cannot get answers from their sibling or the trustee or the lawyer. Right. Now, also, obviously, let's say if there was no living trust and there was no uh, will, then obviously it's going to go through a probate, right? Really quickly, tell us about a probate. Like, how does that process work? Sure. How does that look like? Yeah. So if you have a probate, like you said, there's not a trust set up. It means you have assets over $166,250. So even if it's a house with a mortgage, it's on the gross value. So what happens is you have to hire a lawyer to prepare the petition for the probate. And basically that means you are asking the court to appoint you as the person who's going to manage and wrap up the person who's died or your parents' estate. And the process is extremely burdensome. It's expensive. It takes forever. So if you came in today, Alex, and we prepared a petition today, you would not have a court date until the beginning of August right now. That is how backed up the court system is. Wow. That means from May to August, you're going to you know, try to take care of whatever expenses there are and manage things as best as you can, but you don't actually have any legal authority to do so. Yep. Uh, in August, assuming there's no issues, then you're going to hopefully be appointed the administrator of the estate. And that's when you get what are called letters to start the process where you can start contacting the banks and credit card companies, car, you know, whoever, whatever all the pieces of your parents' estate are, both creditors and um, banks and life insurance investments so that you can start getting an inventory of all of those assets. Then there's a minimum four month waiting period where you have to wait for claims to be filed against the estate you then have to hire what's called a probate referee to essentially decide what the value of your parents' estate is. Of course, you're paying all these people along the way. Um, and then 
at some point you have to prepare an accounting of all the assets that you have and the expenses that you have incurred while you were the administrator and make sure that you didn't do anything unethical or that's not appropriate because you can get yourself in trouble for those. So, you know, if you have a really straightforward, super simple probate, maybe you'll be done in, um, you know, less than a year, but most of them go well beyond that and are a lot messier than that because people don't know what assets their parents have. They don't understand how to deal with the court system. And it's really expensive. You know, you're paying the lawyer tens of thousands of dollars at minimum to help you do all of these things. And you have to have that cash available. In addition, you're paying all sorts of costs, as I just mentioned to the court and to other people that are involved in order to run the probate. So, it's a very expensive, burdensome process for people, but it happens, of course, all day, every day. So, but um, regarding the probate then, so what about, there's two, three siblings. Yeah. One says, I'm going to pay for everything. And the other one's like, you know what, we don't have time, do whatever you want to do. This one sibling goes, pays for all the fees, gets an attorney involved, does all of this, mm -hmm. gets everything back. And then the other kids come and say, okay, we want our share. I mean, how does that look like? I mean, does he deduct all their expenses that he spent or does he get more? Does it, does it all go to him or how does that sure. look like? Yeah. So generally speaking, the way that the distribution goes is it follows what is, what is called intestate, the intestate share, which means I die without a will and it's going to, my assets are going to go to you know, these nat a natural distribution or disposition of, you know, if I have three kids, it's going to be divided into three equal shares, but okay. that's going to be after all of the expenses. So at the end of the probate, the attorney gets paid a percentage of the value based on the probate code. The administrator or the kid who's chosen to do all that can also be paid the same amount that the attorney has been paid because they should be compensated for their time. Okay. So both um, the attorney and the administrator may be paid. The administrator should be reimbursed all of their expenses. And once they've gone through all of those costs and all those expenses um, throughout the probate, you get to the bottom line and what is left will then be split between the three kids. Right, right. Okay, all right. Um, now, what about if someone has a living trust, but then afterward acquires more properties, but forgets to put them in there sure. and then they die. What does that look like? Yeah, so that's very common and it's um, routinely or commonly referred to as what's a Hegstead petition, which is based on an old case. And essentially you as the attorney are going to petition the court to try to show the court that the person who died, that their intent was that their assets be in this trust, but for whatever reason, they forgot. So this is really common when somebody buys a house and puts it in the trust or lists it in the trust schedule, and then either doesn't actually change the title or they do a refi or something, for example, where the, where the title has to be changed and they forget to put it back into the trust. I, as the drafting attorney, can feel really confident saying, well, their intent was that it be in the trust. I've listed it in this in the trust schedule. It used to be in the name of the trust and they just forgot to update it. But your example was, let's say I've set up the trust and, and whatnot and five years down the road, the person buys property and never does anything with it. The attorney is going to have a lot more difficult time trying to say, oh, well, their intent was that it be part of the trust because they didn't even own the property then. It's, it really depends on the facts of the situation and what the how the trust reads and whatnot. You know, there's certain language that you should have in trusts 
and what are called general assignments to deal with all of those things. You also, of course, should advise your clients to check in every several years and certainly when they're making real property acquisitions and opening new accounts and whatnot. But you know, the worst case scenario and probably likely scenario in the example that you just gave, Alex, is that the attorney is not going to be able to get the house into the trust because the house was not there when the trust was created. The client didn't do anything to show an intent to update it or and move that house into the trust. And so the house is now going to go through a probate based on what's most likely a pour over will and eventually will be distributed to the trust, but it still has to go to the pro through the probate process and all those fees before it will become a trust asset. Right. Now, Sandy, what about the siblings? Like, you know, people like me, 50 years old, maybe older or generation mm -hmm. X. And then you got the, the parents that are in their seventies, eighties, but they're very private. How can they, st and, and they don't have a will that, but they're still competent enough. How can their child that, how can they have a, uh, conversation with the parents like so that way it doesn't go to probate it doesn't go yeah. through how do you break that ice yeah so I have a lot of clients who are in that situation and usually my experience is the whole reason I'm talking to them is because the child is seeing me to uh, to create their own estate plan they've bought a house they've just right. started having children and they're learning about why it's um, important and one of the questions I ask the client is well, are, are your parents alive? What do you expect to inherit? Do your parents have a trust? And so they'll say, oh, well, I don't have any idea. How do I talk to them about this? And so what I recommend is that you go to your parents and say, wow, we've been setting up our estate plan and the lawyer had all these questions about what was what we were going to inherit and how our our uh, parents trust were set up and we realized we didn't know anything. Would you be willing to share this information with me or talk with me about it? Um, another thing that I sometimes say is, oh, blame it on me. Tell them that the lawyer needs to know and so that they can kind of break the ice with that. And sometimes the parents will, in fact, say, well, I don't have a trust or will I don't. Oh, I don't have anything. It just goes to you kids anyway. It's not a big deal. And the client will then or the child will then tell their parent. No, you know, our lawyer explained to us that it's going to cost a lot of money if it goes through probate. And so this is a way we can streamline things. And then lots of times I will hear from the parents, you know, separately or the client will tell me, oh, my parents ended up working with an attorney and this was taken care of. But what about if the parents are just stubborn? They're Refuse. like, oh, honey, I'm not going to die. What do you think? I'm going to die tomorrow. I'm going to yeah. live 100 years. There's really nothing that kids can do, right? I That's mean, they're right. Right? That's right. You know, Alex, the thing is, is that you might want to try to control everything your parents can do and make it easier. And it does make it easier. Believe me. I mean, I just spent the last hour before this podcast sitting with somebody who was sorting through records from the 1970s, you know, trying <laughs> to figure out if their dad's stock and insurance was still valid from a 1979 bank statement. You know, that's, wow. that's ridiculous. They have no idea what the assets are, but you know, if, if the parent just refuses, there are people who are superstitious, who are uncomfortable talking That's about right. it, who just don't want people to know their business. That's just what it is. And that means that the child or whoever wants to end up, you know, being the responsible person and wrapping up their parents' estate, they'll have to go through the probate process. And, and there's you can't force someone to do something they don't want to do, of course. No, you can't. And what is the difference between, you know, we hear there's living trusts and uh -huh. um, revocable and unrevocable living trusts? Yeah. So trusts used to be very commonly referred to in, within the title of the trust as a, you know, so-and-so family living trust or family revocable trust. And that's not 
as common anymore because of multiple reasons. But the main thing to understand is that a trust that you create during your lifetime in general is automatically revocable. It's, it's an asset um, or a trust that you can change the terms, you can change the assets, you can do whatever you want with a trust while you're, while you're alive because it's an extension of you. A trust becomes irrevocable when you no longer have control over it, meaning you've either become incapacitated or more often have died. I'm the creator or the trustor or the grantor, the person who set up my trust, right? But once I've died, that power to revoke it and make changes is unique to me only. So once I've died, someone else can't go in there and make changes and revoke it. It's now become irrevocable. And so that's what that's referring to. It's basically saying, you know, my trust is revocable. It's a living trust during my life. But after I've died, it's become irrevocable. It's confusing to people because you have irrevocable trust after the parents have died that are still called, you know, Smith family revocable trust, even though it's no longer revocable. But I've heard that you could have an irrevocable, irrevocable trust while you're alive, though, correct? That's true. Yeah. And so that is, you know, for our discussion purposes, less common, so to speak. You'll use an irrevocable trust for multiple reasons when you're trying to get assets out of your estate. If you have a high value taxable estate, you it might make sense to have an irrevocable trust if you're um, trying to protect certain assets against liability and whatnot, then an irrevocable trust might make sense. And certainly those are, are things for people to consider as well. This has been really educational. It's a lot of good stuff and really our listeners need to really digest this and really yeah. this. And, and I'm telling you, um, there's going to be a lot of transfer. I mean, like around here, home values are going millions right now. Right. And the right. parents bought it for seventy, eighty thousand. We're not talking chump change money. Mm -hmm. We're talking a lot of money that's going to get transferred. And I'm hoping that while the parents are alive, that they do this because if they they do it the proper way of having a trust, the will. If not afterward, you can really see a lot of these kids that are going to, especially if they've if they if 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 the siblings. You know, while they were children, maybe they didn't get along and then they got older, they moved away and they were they were OK again. They were talking to each other. And if the parents don't do it right, then all of a sudden, all those bad memories as a child comes back. Exactly. And it, just, it just leaves this bad taste. And I really don't like when I die, I don't want my kids to be fighting each of other. Course. Like you want them to love each other. And, it's, sure. and when it comes to money and finances, especially now, I mean, the cost of living and everything, it's 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 very important that they really um, understand and, 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 and educate themselves and really sit with their parents, but also themselves too. Anything, anything else that you think our listeners can take away from uh, today's podcast that can really help them either for themselves uh, when it comes to, you know, creating a trust or what have you, or uh, the parents. Yeah, I think you kind of touched on it. You know, you're really doing your, if we're talking about it in terms of a family and children, you're really doing your family a disservice by not getting this stuff and it set up again, saying to yourself, well, oh, everything goes to the kids anyway. I don't have that much. That doesn't help anybody because there's no instructions when that's going on. And it forces your kids to deal with court and it puts your kids in some sort of a potentially, um, 
a conflict-ridden situation when it's unclear what they're supposed to do. And so the question I guess I often have for people is, you know, maybe it's true that everything's very simple, but who do you want getting the majority of, you know, your money? Do you want that a lot of the money and assets that you earn throughout your lifetime to get tied up in court and going to lawyers and taxes and whatnot? Or would you rather it being split appropriately between your children or going to a charity or how you want the the assets to go. And I think that by being communicative as much as you can with your family, or at least getting the documents in place, you know, you're, you're making things easier for people who are expected to clean up what you've left behind, essentially, and it's to their benefit, certainly for them to inherit the money and whatnot. But wouldn't you rather your money going to your children and grandchildren and whatnot, or a charity of your choice, rather than going to the court system. I mean, I think most people would. <laughs> and also too, it's not that expensive. I mean, for something like if somebody comes yeah. to see you just for a general, I mean, not too complicated. I mean, what what does that look like? How much does that yeah, cost? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, for most estate plans, you're looking at you know, you know, the ballpark is probably for me, it's all around. $2,800 or $3,000 in general, but the ballpark can be a little bit less than that and maybe a couple thousand dollars more. But so let's say it in a very complex worst case scenario or something, you're spending $5,000 on getting all of your documents together. That's a lot better than the tens of thousands of dollars and the time commitment and the stress that's going to be met on the, uh, on the back end. Especially when it, not having to worry about your kids going to fight each other once right. you're gone, right? right? I mean, obviously, absolutely. I mean, it's it's very, very important. And, and, and I think there's certain things in life that you don't want to take shortcuts. Right. This is one of them. Like, yeah, I agree. Taxes, you don't want to do shortcuts. <laughs> when it comes to this, you don't want to do shortcuts. I mean, they want to save a few dollars, but they right. don't understand that yes. what's going to happen down the road if they don't do this the, the, the proper way. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, Sandy, thank you. Um, there's anything else... Anything else you'd like to cover? No, I just want to say thanks for having me. And I'm glad to be a resource for people. And I just, again, you know, we can't control everything, but why not do whatever we can to try to make things a little bit easier and save some money and whatnot too. And Cindy, if they want to get hold of you, you say you're in Walnut Creek. What, uh, can you give us your, you know, your phone number, your address, your email address also? Yeah. So my, um, my website is www.cindysag.com law.com and Cindy is C-I-N-D-Y SAG is S as in Sam A-Y-E-G-H law.com and you can always call my office 925-945-8831 I am here and my staff is here and we answer the phones and return messages and my office is off San Miguel so it's right up the street from like the Kaiser and the Whole Foods over on Newell and very easy open parking no elevators easy access here <laughs> now, I was I know exactly where you are I yeah. actually I had a listing yesterday on Walker right around the oh, corner yeah yeah so while I was going close. to that listing I was thinking about you <laughs> yeah that's a great and then we're right by the Iron Horse Trail over that's there. right I actually yeah. I actually go back and forth on that every weekend we, we could ride our bikes there yeah right right sure that's wonderful well thank you Cindy I want to uh, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. I want to th- uh, thank all of our listeners for tuning in and listening to uh, uh, to my podcast. Please uh, make sure you know you subscribe to our podcast. Make sure to share this. Give us a review. We appreciate you, and hopefully, we'll be 
uh, coming out with our next episode very shortly. And we hope that you tune in and share it with your friends. Thanks again, Cindy. Thanks, Alex. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.